We are starting, though, with more about that scathing report released yesterday, taking a look at BC Housing and specifically the relationship between BC Housing's former CEO and the current CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Centre. We've communicated as government uh, and the BC Housing Board uh, to Atira our belief that there is a need for a change in leadership at Atira because of, frankly, uh, the disappointing response to what certainly I see as a crisis of government confidence in that organization um, and their willingness to follow the basic rules of the agreements that they enter into with us. Um, And uh, unfortunately, their press release uh, does not inspire confidence in me that that shift has taken place. In fact, it says that uh, that they have total confidence in how things have been going at Atira. Um, anyone reading the report would not have that confidence. They, anyone reading the report uh, would believe that things have to change over there. That was Premier David E.B. speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi. Well, joining me now is Jill Atke, and Jill Atke is the CEO of the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on, Jill. I'm curious in your role as you uh, deal with housing and nonprofit housing, and I know it's a 50-page report and there's a lot of information in it. What are your thoughts, though, about what we've learned about this conflict of interest and that relationship between BC Housing and Atira? Yeah, this was certainly an uh, anticipated report, and we've known, as everybody else has for a number of months, that it would be coming out this spring. Um, So when it landed yesterday, everybody was uh, busily sort of uh, dissecting it. Um, And what really stood out for me, and I've talked to others in the sector, kind of two aspects of the report. So one is, um, you know, the focus of of the findings, and, and that's largely around a conflict of interest issue between two leaders in our sector. And, you know, like most, I'm seeing that the report exposes serious breaches in conflict of interest protocols. And really, frankly, that should rightly be a concern to British Columbians. And then the second area um, is uh, the set of recommendations um, and the potential impact to the sector as a whole. And in particular providing additional oversight, timely financial reviews, and uh, that's largely where we as a sector and as an association are focusing our energies is understanding those a little bit better and then speaking to nonprofits about their perspectives on, on some of those recommendations. Do you think it came as a surprise to anyone? The figures that came out in the report that Atira got almost double the funding from BC Housing, so double the government funding than the next housing provider down the list. Would would that have come as a surprise to anyone in the sector? You know, the sector has experienced considerable growth over the last number of years, so most housing providers have grown, and particularly supportive housing providers have grown because this has been a significant area of investment for this provincial government. Um, So all supportive housing providers have grown. Um, It probably came as a surprise to some that Atira had grown um, more significantly than others. But, you know, we organized a roundtable yesterday and and nonprofits and particularly supportive housing nonprofits participated in that roundtable, and their perspective was, you know, look, Atira uh, fills a really important niche, so women and children leaving violence, 
um, and particularly through a low barrier approach. And not all supportive housing providers do. Uh, and so their perspective was, you know, if these had come open for contract, they didn't feel like they were losing out necessarily because Atira fills that niche. Um, so there wasn't a, an overwhelming sense of we've missed out as a result, despite being surprised about, uh, about the amount of growth. So when you look at the recommendations, and these come from, uh, in the report, it shows several times uh, a lot of text messages or, or messages between uh, the head of Atira, Janice Abbott, and the former CEO of BC Housing. Uh, I mean, some of it does point to uh, Atira getting uh, getting funding that should have been approved by an executive board. It wasn't, and it does kind of paint that picture. Is, is there a thought, though, that there are other agencies that maybe should have been given that money or or didn't get a chance to get that money because it was being it was or because Atira was kind of given special treatment? Yeah, I think I mean, some of this is, uh, you know, consistent with previous findings um, in, in the previous audit where uh, policy and procedure was maybe not as robust as it should have been. And, and some of that I characterize or, or sort of chalk up to really rapid growth of BC housing. So sometimes when you grow really quickly, your systems don't keep uh, pace and there's a bit of a lag there. It's not been, at least in, with the nonprofits I've spoken to, there isn't an overwhelming sense of um of, you know, uh, them having lost out because they also experienced significant growth at the same time that the sector's dealing with staffing and recruitment challenges. So they've been able to manage their growth and, and you know, have received additional projects and, and have largely felt like that is meeting the needs in their communities. Those new projects are meeting the needs in their communities. And, um, and so that's been the feeling of the sector. And really wanting to underscore the fact that we have 800 nonprofit housing providers in this province um, and a, providing a really broad range of housing options in pretty much every community right across the province. Um, and not to lose sight on, uh, on that important work so people are being supported uh, people have access to safe, secure, and affordable housing. And that's really the touchstone for our sector. And the mission of our sector is to ensure those strong services are in place. And that's been the focus of the conversation, is making sure that in this conversation, we're not losing sight of the good work happening in the sector. Do you think some of the recommendations then on that note, uh, the one about uh, considering an implementation of an anonymous whistleblower uh, to provide employees that opportunity to, to report things that, that they may have concerns about uh, looking at the standards of conduct, are there recommendations you think that could be beneficial to the sector? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think... I think we can all kind of um, sit here and go, you know, in retrospect, that probably may have been a good idea uh, for Crown Corporation to have those protective uh, mechanisms in place. I know a lot of nonprofits have those mechanisms in place. Um, so, so that will be uh, to provide some additional sh assurance going forward. The focus of our conversations in the sector have um, 
have really largely been on some of the recommendations around uh, oversight, additional oversight in the sector. And I haven't spoken in my career in housing and particularly nonprofit housing. I have not spoken to anyone in the sector who does not think that when we're spending public dollars, there doesn't need to be robust oversight. So absolutely everybody's on board with that. I think it's important for people to understand, and it didn't really get, I don't think, fair attention in the report, um, what existing mechanisms are in place in terms of uh, oversight of public dollars going into the nonprofit sector. So uh, there's independent financial audits done annually. There's uh, financial reviews done annually by BC Housing. Uh, operational reviews happen every three years, more frequently if needed. So there are good um, oversight protections in place, but certainly what we see in the recommendations are that those may need to be more robust, and that is absolutely a conversation that the sector is prepared to have. And, um, and in fact, some of those recommendations have been put forward by the sector for some time. Right, because not to suggest that that good work isn't being done, and like you said, Atira feel, f- fills a, a part of housing needs, maybe that others don't. But but you're right when you talk about oversight and even I think transparency when we're talking about public dollars, taxpayer dollars, people mm-hmm. see millions and millions of dollars going into this, but then also see tent cities and see homelessness and see see a problem that still very very much exists. Absolutely. It's frustrating for service providers, it's frustrating for government, and it's frustrating for British Columbians, the general public. Um, You know, we did not see housing investments in this country and in this province to the scale that we should have uh, for a generation. And now we're playing catch up. At the same time, the crisis continues to worsen. Um, So investments are made, housing is built, people move into new housing, but we're still creating homelessness um, as as we go through that cycle um, because rental affordability uh, is a real challenge in virtually every community in this province. Um, So it's not that the dollars are not having impact, it's that investment needs to keep pace um, with the worsening crisis that's developing around us. And, and that's very much a conversation that we've been having for years in the sector. Right. And, and how do you, where do you think that conversation goes now in that clearly uh, putting more money, and, and that's important, but obviously just putting more money into it isn't going to solve everything? Yeah, you know, for us, it was really reassuring to hear the Premier and the Minister reinforce their commitment to the nonprofit sector. These are the key delivery partners for the province's affordable housing objectives. And that, um, for us, hearing that this government does not plan on changing course as a result of of these findings was encouraging. Um, And so where do we go now? Uh, Looking at the recommendations, it's clear that more oversight um, is needed and the sector, as I said, has been putting some of these same recommendations forth uh, themselves and is very keen to roll up their sleeves and and get to work on on, um, developing oversight mechanisms that work for both uh, the funder, so the protector of those public dollars, but also work for those who are being funded 
in a in a fairly efficient and and streamlined way. Anytime you have more oversight, uh, there are more resources that go into uh, ensuring that that oversight is met. So that might be new software that's required. Um, the previous audit identified for BC Housing, um, serious IT upgrades were required. Government's going to need to invest in that. And similarly for the sector, if we're moving from annual reporting to quarterly or monthly reporting, there are additional resources that come attached to that. That's a conversation that we're very keen to have with government and with BC Housing. All right, Jill Atke, appreciate you making the time today. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for your time as well, Jill. All right, this is a story I think that there is going to be a lot of feedback on. It certainly has sparked a lot of discussion. It may have some details that make people uncomfortable, but we are talking about a BC teaching assistant currently in a bit of a battle with her school district, her employer, because of posts that she makes on social media. Kristen McDonald previously started an OnlyFans account. She operates that OnlyFans account using a different name, but she says that her employer has told her that it is inappropriate and has sent a letter saying she must cease and desist her social media accounts. That includes other accounts as well as her OnlyFans page. Well, Kristen McDonald joins me now on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Well, we are going to get into what is happening with your job and what you are being told by your employer. Before we do that, though, for people that are not familiar with OnlyFans, can you describe what is an OnlyFans page? Yeah, thank you so much. I think that's a great question. Um, And that's actually, I want to bring a little more awareness to the platform itself. Um, So OnlyFans was originally created to allow people to share exclusive content at a paid price or subscription. So initially it was very popular with, um, you know, athletes, songwriters, um, actresses, actors, um, even, you know, chefs um, could basically share content um, while charging a fee. Uh, And then, of course, sex took over. Um, So now you have not only uh, what I initially spoke about, but you have you have people um, sharing sexual content as well. And what kind of content do you share on your OnlyFans page? Well, I would uh, definitely recommend you subscribe and find out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Can you give us just a Coles Notes version, though, or an idea? Yeah, I mean, um, we all have our boundaries, right, Uh, when it comes to OnlyFans. I think it's really important and, um, you know, something that if you are planning on starting an OnlyFans, I would would suggest that you you really know your boundaries ahead of time. Um, But I do some spicy content but nothing that uh, goes against what what I'm comfortable with. Um, so you okay. have this OnlyFans page. It's not even the same yes. name. It's a different name that you use on this OnlyFans page. But your employer, Correct. the Coquitlam School District, uh, has become aware of this. What has happened? Uh, what are you being told from your employer because you have this page? Yeah, so actually... Um, one of the other things I'd like to talk, like to state about OnlyFans is you have to have a, um, uh, basically a subscriber profile with a uh, 
secure payment method as well as your identity secured before you can access anything on OnlyFans. So I just want um, people to keep that in mind. Um, I'm being told by my employer that I need to remove all content related to Ava James. So that's my Instagram, TikTok, and my OnlyFans page. Removed. And did they tell you why they want you to remove it? Uh, specifically, no. I, I mean, we can all guess. I'm sure you and I both have an understanding of why they want it removed. Right, for, for sure. And But have they told you uh, that it, it violates the agreement you have working with the school district or uh, to, to tell you that you must take it all down? It just seems like they would at least need to back that up with something. There's a lot of talk about that. I believe the um, paragraph stated is actually um, like a written violation by a student, like a written complaint by a student against one of my TikToks is my understanding. And I believe the TikTok that was seen, um, it was like the content itself was very clean, but I was in a bikini. Right, which, I mean, there's no law saying you can't be in a bikini out in public on uh, social media or, or anything like that. Yeah, I would, I would uh, absolutely agree with you. Uh, do you know how the school district even came to know? Like you said, you go by the name of Ava James. Do you know how they even came to know about these social media sites that you have? I mean, there's 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 some you know rumors fluttering around. Um, I kind of got wind that maybe some coworkers had come across my my one of my Ava James socials, even though I had I had gone out of my way to actually block a lot of. Um, my coworkers. But, you know, uh, the reality is too, I mean, we have a lot of, um, a lot of students whose parents are staff at the school as well. So I'm not quite sure, but here we are. <laughs> so what was your response then to your employer when they, when they sent you this, what is effectively a, a cease and desist letter? Yeah, um, I mean, my response has been pretty consistent. I'm not taking down any of my socials. And have they responded to you saying, thank you for this, I'm not doing what this letter is telling me to do? Well, I've received a write-up uh, for basically every every time I, I speak out to the media. So <laughs> I think they're pretty aware of my intentions at this point. Can you tell us what kind of job, not that it really matters at the end of the day, but I'm, I'm just curious, what kind of job do you have with the school district? Uh, I work, so I work with special needs kids um, and I support, I support students in the classroom as well. Um, I've, I've worked there for a while, so I've, I've worked with lots of different students, but I'm, I'm basically learning support, learning and safety support. All right. And did you did you start doing the social posts? Was it more of a hobby for you, or something fun, or is it actually something lucrative that that you're able to make like a, like a supplemental uh, income? I would say it's both, actually. And I, 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 I'm not asking you how much how much you make, and if you're not comfortable answering, this is fine. But I'm I'm wondering, do you, do you make comparable uh, to to what you make in your job on your socials, or or is it quite lucrative? Um, let's just say I probably make more than you think. <laughs> um, have you talked to an employment lawyer or, or talk, gotten any legal advice on whether or not the school district is even within its rights to tell you that you have to take down your social media? 
I am in the process of doing that. Um, yeah, so I'm in the process of doing of doing that. From my understanding, just even like um, you know the cited professionals in the original article by the Daily Hive, uh, I I am within my rights to be operating Ava James um, outside of like in my personal time. Right. And, and I'd seen that as well. The, 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 at least one employment lawyer uh, had said that uh, uh, for sure. Uh, you mentioned that, that you block co-workers as much as you can. Is there any potential situation or any chance that a student could subscribe to your OnlyFans channel or the, that a student could be watching these? Uh, I mean, the only <laughs> the only opportunity for that is if they stole their parents' credit card. Um, well, no, I don't think so because you have to be, your identity is verified and you have to be 18 plus to be on the platform. So I'm curious then what kind of a response you've been getting and what does this mean as far as what do you do from this point on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so to be perfectly honest, uh, when the first article came out prior, prior to it, uh, you know, I was I was struggling with my own insecurities um, and feeling like, wow, like I'm really going to get um, a lot of negative feedback from the public. But it's been quite the opposite, to be honest. Um, it's amazing the the support and positivity from the public, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. And so from this point on, like you said, you've been written up a couple of times. You've got this cease and desist to yeah, order. What happen- <laughs> Yeah, what happens next, do you think? Well, I'll probably get another write-up for this interview. Definitely. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, I'm, I'm not going to back down. I feel like, uh, you know, there's a lot of inequality still um, as a woman. You know, it's an old boys club. And the amount of... Uh, you know, stuff that goes on behind closed doors that nobody talks about and nobody's getting written up about. And then to have, um, you know, me being told that, that I'm not allowed to um, explore my sexuality um, in a safe way. I I have a problem with that, you know. Um, and... I think this is an opportunity to be an advocate um, for anyone who wants to explore their sexuality in a safe way. Um, I think that was good, but then I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, so you keep going to your job at the Coquitlam School District. You keep your social media sites up and kind of wait and see, well, I guess. I'm, I'm, cur- I'm, current, I'm currently on uh, medical leave as I, I actually had spine surgery on April 24th. So um, I still have uh, basically like a three-inch incision in my back with like 11 staples. So um, I'm recovering from that. And the plan is to go back to work when you're fully recovered? I mean, I'm kind of taking it day by day at this point. Um, I certainly, I love my job. I would would love to go back. Um, I'm just not sure what kind of vibe it would be at this point. But I mean, a lot can change between now and then. 
All right. Well, we will stay tuned to see what happens next. Kristen, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out. Speaking of that new Canada Goose Management Plan, it could include the lethal removal of hundreds of birds every year. This was a staff report that came before the Vancouver Park Board last night, saying that the current population of resident geese in the city sits at about 2,200. However, there are concerns those numbers could increase by about 18% per year and that the city could be dealing with about 10,000 Canada geese by the year 2030. So, The report also talks about the overpopulation of geese, saying it has caused problems with parks, problems at beaches, and they have seen an increase in calls to 311. But there are some concerns about the idea of using lethal force. Well, Sarah Dubois joins us now, Senior Director of Standards, Science and Policy and BCSBCA Chief Scientific Officer. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me this afternoon, what are your thoughts on, the, they do talk about a number of different methods, egg addling, uh, swapping out sterilized eggs into the goose nests, saying that they've tried to, to do these types of things. It doesn't always work. So there is this potential for lethal removal of the Canada geese. Lethal options should never be your first go-to, of course. And understanding the population is the primary goal. There have been multiple different reports as to what the population is right now, the uncertainty around it. And we've seen this before with the coyotes in Stanley Park. Let's just take that as another example. That lethal calls, of course, you know, have lots of opposition. People don't want the city to do that with their tax dollars. Of course, Canada geese can be a nuisance. They poop. They do uh, eat a lot of grass. And that might be a problem on sports fields or on golf courses. But a long-term strategy has to really look at multiple different uh, habitat restoration, you know, habitat modification, as well as sterilizing and removing eggs for it to be successful. Uh, they pointed to, or at least I know some of the the commissioners pointed to the fact that this is used elsewhere or that there have there has been the use of lethal removal in other jurisdictions and that perhaps there has been some success with that. Is it used or do you, are you aware that it is used elsewhere? So goose management happens across Vancouver Island, the Lower Mainland, and in many other different provinces because we do have non-migratory populations of geese that are here year-round. And so this is not a new problem. It has been studied and documented well in the literature, and that's what they need to be looking at. You know, I don't believe the the Park Board, um, you know, has... um, is quite ready to make that decision. If they look at the case studies, killing, yes, reduces the population in a short term, but the long-term strategy of actually managing this population is is not going to be achieved by a quick call. And by doing the other methods, the egg addling or, or other methods of uh, that you talked about to, to try and, and kind of stabilize or stop the population from exploding what kind of a timeline uh, does it does it take or are you looking at as far as bringing in those measures and seeing an actual reduction in the population 
The challenge with some of the non-lethal measures is they're never done 100%. And so the resources and funds that are often dedicated to these positions are seasonal. They're not year-long. And so we are excited to see that potentially a, a wildlife coordinator could be hired under this new project. And that would perhaps give some consistency to these types of programs. Because often the management of geese pops up when there are a series of complaints. It's not something that is consistently done throughout the year. And so that is where they'd have to really look at how can we implement all of the non-lethal strategies to their fullest extent and then assess the situation. Right, because, and like you said, they can they can cause problems, and I think that's the whole reason that this is being discussed, is they can cause problems to sports fields. Nobody wants to go to a field or to a park or a beach, and there's goose poop everywhere on the beach. They can also be uh, kind of aggressive. Uh, I've seen them, you know, going after smaller dogs or people, and it seems like the more geese, the more those kind of conflicts happen. Unfortunately, it's the more people those conflicts happen. <laughs> so people have been feeding geese, and that is a significant problem. Is, is a lot of people do think that that can be, um, you know, whether le- leaving bird seed out intentionally or unintentionally leaving other types of potential food sources out. So that's an issue is that we basically condition these birds to being around us. And then when they put on their own defense mode, we get, you know, really concerned. And, you know, we just want to prevent those interactions from happening in the first place. But the reality is the geese have to live somewhere. And so other places have looked at creating habitat for them. So if we don't want them on our parks, then what are we going to do? So how are we going to modify our parks to create, you know, perhaps some some space that is outside of where the people want to be within the park, but the geese can still be there or the other species of animals. Because this happens anytime we label an animal nuisance, we just don't want it there anymore. And then there becomes kind of this rhetoric that is kind of self-fulfilling to say like, oh, it's okay to remove these animals because they're a nuisance. But we saw that whether it's coyotes, whether it's feral uh, rabbits, these populations um, do rebound and that we have to figure out a long-term strategy to live with them. It's all about coexistence. Uh, you mentioned the coyotes, and uh, certainly uh, I know that it, that was also very controversial, the use of, of lethal force, the culling of uh, coyotes in Stanley Park. But a lot of that also, or part of that problem, was also people that were leaving out food, whether it was to get a photo or they thought it was fun to leave food for the coyotes. So is this also a case of more enforcement and people, both education and perhaps ticketing when people are caught feeding these geese? Absolutely. Any of the wildlife that's being fed can become a nuisance. So that is an important part of this ticketing. You know, how many tickets have been issued since the city of Vancouver's new wildlife feeding bylaw has been implemented last year? That's a great question to find out. Same thing within the parks. The Parks Board did the same thing the year earlier. They implemented their own fine system. So how many fines or education interactions have happened? You know, I think, again, this is resource intensive, but it is, you know, a strategy that can be done in collaboration with other groups. So you have, for example, Wildlife Rescue Association who rehabilitates wildlife that is injured. They're very aware of some of the sites where geese are nesting because they have this documented over years of calls for assistance uh, for nesting birds on balconies and such. And so working in collaboration with the wildlife organizations in the city would be a really great attempt to understand where these geese are actually having their nests, as well as how can we go about doing Adeline to a level that is actually going to make an impact. 
And can it be done as well? This is the, a Vancouver Park Board initiative. It's for geese that are in Vancouver. Does it work, though, if we're not taking it as a strategy in the entire region in that it's not as though the geese know the boundary between Vancouver and Burnaby or Vancouver and Richmond or anywhere for that matter? Exactly. They're going to just hop over and hang out on the North Shore for a little while if they are being chased off lands in Vancouver, and then they're going to come back the next day. Right. So this is the thing is that we live in a beautiful place of nature. We all just, you know, to be in British Columbia because most of us are drawn to its natural beauty and its wildlife. And yet um, we have to figure out how to coexist with them because we've created landscapes that are desirable that increase populations of certain animals. And that's the truth here for, for geese. Uh, how concerning is it, though, with the, the park board numbers that if nothing is done, that we could see numbers of, of about, about, and I don't know how accurate these are, but uh, with 2,200 geese now uh, reaching uh, 10,000 geese by 2030? You know, that's modeling, that's predictive modeling to say, you know, if there was like a, a increment, you know, incremental growth of these populations, perhaps without any predations or cars or other natural death factors. So, you know, there's a concern, of course, but populations can self-regulate if they're properly balanced. And that's um, why, um, you know, we have to recognize that we've done so much to the environment that's made it a desirable location that has perhaps, you know, um, upset the balance of the number of geese that um, are in the city and that can have, you know, a, a successful um, lives and thrive in the city. But I think that that's the bigger picture. We have to look at this probably from a Metro Vancouver stance and do it together because we just don't want to put the problem somewhere else. All right, Sarah Dubois, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure.